Shabbat Shalom. Genesis chapter 15. Question is, have you ever gone through a period of testing, a long period of trial? You know, if you're a believer, you surely did go through many of them, and perhaps you're going through one of them right at this moment. But have you asked yourself, how does it work? What are the elements that lead us to be tested, and why? Why these trials? Why? Where do they lead us to? And why are some most, more tested than others? And how are we supposed to properly handle our trials? Abraham, the spiritual father of all those who have faith in Yeshua, went through not one, not two, but so many trials in his lifetime. His life story is made up of a succession of trials, one after the other one. While great truth are revealed through this man, these trials were part and parcel of his journey here on earth. From chapter 12 to chapter 25 of Genesis, where we have the life of Abraham, he's always on the move. Always facing an adventure. He goes from the comfort of Ur to the unknown Canaan. Once there, he right away faces a famine and he goes down to Egypt and comes back and he fights these four kings. At some point in his life, he finally gets the promised son, Isaac, but 25 years, 25 long years after the promise, when he was 100 years old. And then an unexpected curveball comes his way. God asks him to sacrifice his son. One would have thought that after the first, the second or third trial, it would have been enough. Dayenu. But looking at his life story, it seems that Abraham only relaxed when he went to heaven. However, I just want to tell you there's a purpose why his biography made it in our scriptures. It is there for our learning, for our growth, for our encouragement, because at the end, the life of all believers looks so much that of Abraham. He's so much like who we are. Abraham in his many failures and triumphs at the end highly succeeded and became Abraham our father. We have in him a manual on faith and trial, a volume on the anatomy of testing. Like the history of Israel is made bare to us so that we can learn from her, so is the life of Abraham. His emotions, his fears, his good and bad decisions, his successes are divinely selected so that we could be taught and trained so that at the end we can be like him. Among the many sub-trials, Abraham had four major ones in his life. The first one was departure from Ur. The book of Hebrew tells us that he didn't know where he was going. He knew the direction, but he did not know what to expect. But he went by faith. The second test is about the land. He was promised the land. But the question was, when was he going to have it? The third is about the offspring. How and when was he going to have a son? And the fourth is the sacrifice of Isaac. Two of them, the one about the land and the one about the offspring, we're going to look into today. These are found in the three chapters in front of us. Chapter 15, 16, 17. Therefore, the first time, Abraham speaks to God and asks questions. But God only gives partial answers. And the rest was left to Abraham to figure out. And this is where we're going to learn some important things about faith and about trial. Let us see how Abraham deals with the promise of the offspring first. 
the one that he received in Genesis 12, and now over 10 years later, he asks about it, because he was not getting younger. Let's look at chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards the heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham was getting old, and he asked about his promised son. That was a legitimate question, and he asked twice, as if the first question was left unanswered. Verse 2, but Abraham said, it says. And again in verse 3, then Abraham said, it seems that to have been a lapse of time between the two verses here with no immediate answer. And as he speaks to God, he mentions Eliezer, his servant, as a possible heir, because this is what was the logical consequence. At that time, if you had no sons, your chief servant would become your heir. And here God strongly confirms that it would not be through this man, but through Abraham, and then he brings him out to see the immensity of the universe, and he tells him no more. How and when, he doesn't tell him. He, for instance, doesn't tell him that it would be through Sarah, his wife, and not another woman. In fact, three times in the past, God had told him that he was going to have a child, and he doesn't specify that it would be through Sarah. But because Sarah was getting old and going over the age of childbearing, Abraham could not figure out how he was going to have a child. The rest of this part of the story is in chapter 16. It is a sad one. There Abraham goes to another woman and things get sour very fast. His marriage becomes in shambles. Accusations fly left and right and inappropriate acts and are committed by all who are involved. Acts you would not believe a man and a woman like Abraham and Sarah would actually commit. But if God had simply told Abraham that it would be through Sarah, we would not have Genesis 16. But there's a purpose in this silence. Let's go there and see what happened and why. Genesis 16, verses 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. I gave you my maid into your hands. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abraham said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Sad story, isn't it? 
Now, according to the same laws of the time, the laws of Hammurabi and the, that of the Nuzi text, even though these laws came a few hundred years after Abraham, they reflected the current belief. In these laws, if a woman could not bear children, she would ask her maid to, ask as a, or to act as a surrogate mother. That was the law. But what is legally right is not always spiritually or morally, morally right, right? Sarah herself chooses an Egyptian servant, one they must have gotten as a gift from Pharaoh after they had the experience in Egypt, back in Genesis 12, when this Pharaoh, out of fear, gave Abraham many gifts, and Hagar, the third party now, was among them. What happens next is a series of accusations. First, in verse 2, Sarah accuses God from restraining her from bearing children. Why is it God's fault when things go wrong? Things are bad because of sin in general, not because God who actually works so hard to restrain sin. And second, as Abraham goes to Hagar, things did not turn as, as Sarah wished. Hagar begins to despise her in verse 5. She, Sarah blames Abraham in the strongest terms. She even asks that God judges between her and her husband. Now from being the author of the problem, he's called to be a judge. And in the meantime, she harshly mistreats Hagar. A pregnant woman sends her away. So it did not take long for things to go sour, right? When we are out of the will of God, sin begins to invade our lives. But if God knew all these things, if God who sees all things knows all things, why did he not tell Abraham in the previous chapter that it would be through Sarah? It would have been easier, right? Actually, he did. He did. He did in many, many ways. There were many open doors, many hints for Abraham, but he did not see them. Let's consider Abraham's behavior and try to see these open doors we often miss in our lives. In verse 2, when Sarah offers Hagar, there's no resistance at all from Abraham. We simply read that Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. Yes, okay, I'm going. Why so fast? I don't want to go there, but I'll tell you why I think it is. <laughs> perhaps, and let's be nice, perhaps he saw Sarah too old and could not figure out how the child was to come, so he readily accepts to go to Hagar. But here, both him and Sarah guessed what was God's will, and they both were wrong. Abraham should have known that it must have been only through Sarah and no one else. And then wouldn't have been all this problem. He was not left in the dark first. In the last episode in Egypt, when God came down to Pharaoh to prevent him from touching Sarah. What is it written? In 12.17. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of who? Of Abraham? No. Of Sarah. It was because of Sarah. This is a strong indication that she was to carry the promised son. Abraham should have remembered this. And he should have as well remembered the word of God when he spoke of marriage. God created Adam and Eve. He clearly stated in Genesis 2.24 that the two shall be one flesh. But here he accepts the introduction of a third party and disaster occurs. 
And there's some kind of irony in the account, by the way, if you read verse 3 again. It says, it begins by saying, Then Sarai, Abraham's wife, this is how the Spirit qualifies her, it says, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife. There is the anomaly. You cannot have two wives. In fact, when God meets Hagar later in this chapter, he right away clarifies her position in verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Right? He didn't say, oh, Abraham's second wife. The introduction of a third party in a marriage is a sure recipe for disaster. The only third party in marriage that can make it work is God. The greatest example of third parties and how devastating it is, is with Solomon. He didn't have a third party. He had a thousand third party. 700 wives and 300 concubines. How did he get to this? Right? What happened after Israel was broken up and still today... It suffered the consequences of this unwise decision. And one more thing about Abraham. Why did he not pray to God? Why not ask God with whom he had such a close relationship? We don't see him praying here. He kept it all to himself. He did not see the open doors. And what he did, he took it upon himself and he guessed. But this is major when you consider the great theological consequence because behind all this story that we have in Genesis 16. Even later, in the New Testament, Paul takes this example in Galatians chapter 4 and compares Sarah to Hagar as one representing the flesh and the other the spirit. The flesh was the choice of another woman. This is what Abraham did. And the spirit was considered God's will. In Galatians 4, Hagar came to present earthly Jerusalem. This is what she represents. Sarah, heavenly Jerusalem. What a contrast. The promise was through Abraham and Sarah. wasn't through Eliezer and Hagar. Abraham should have known. Let's sum up and see where he did go wrong. A closer look will help us to see actually how God works even in our lives. Here we can see the anatomy of failure. What were his weak points? First, Abraham did not consider what God thinks about this matter. He did not consider Genesis 2.24, which clearly says that one wife and only one. He forgot to consider why God intervened with Pharaoh to save Sarah. For us today, this amounts to consider the word of God. Do we know our God? Do we know his will? Do we know how he would act in different situations? It is right there in the scriptures, in our Bibles. Through many life stories like this one, we learn how God acts. Second, we did not see Abraham communicating with God. Why did he not call God? For us today, this amounts to prayer. Prayer. Why not ask God when you have a problem to solve? Why not ask him to strengthen you when you go through difficult trial? We must avoid accusing God of our failures and we must see him as suffering with us and wanting so much to help us. This is how the Bible portrays the God of the scriptures. And third, one important one is that Abraham did not take his responsibilities. Like Adam, he gives way to the irrational demands of his wife. And we read in Genesis 16:6. So Abraham said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do what you want with her. This is surely not the way to resolve a problem. Hagar was abused and harshly mistreated, really because Abraham did not take his role as the head of the house. 
For us today, whichever responsibilities are given to us, we are called to fulfill them here. It's not in doing, actually. The sin is the absence of action. This is where Abraham fell here. Like it is written in James 4.17, right? Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin. Sin. This is what happened. Abraham failed in these three points, and I'm really amazed of the Bible's honesty and truthfulness. Here is the one who is called the father of all believers, and here are laid down his failures because the message right here is that no man is righteous. Only the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Yeshua, Mashiach, is the only one through whom we have salvation. He will never let you down. And so it was after Abraham's failures that God finally comes in action to repair the damages. Now he comes. The rest of chapter 16, I want to tell you, it's truly beautiful. Just let's read verses 7 to 9. It says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her under her hand. Now, did you see how verse 7 begins? Now the angel of the Lord. Now, do you know who this is? It's a, actually a theophany. That is when God comes down in a visible form, and here he, he comes as the angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord's first appearance in the scriptures. Hagar sees him and recognizes him actually as God. And she's even surprised that she's still, she was still alive. After that she saw him. This you see in verse 13. I'll read it for you from the New, Ameri New American Standard. It says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she says, Have I even remained alive after that I have seen him? She knew that one cannot see God, cannot see the God of Abraham and live. It was known. This is why she was surprised. But who released this angel from the Lord? Jesus. We know this from John 1.18. It says, now no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom, of the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He's the only one who actually can be called God. The Messiah is God made man, not the opposite, right? This is why He's called God. We may not see the power of this verse because we're accustomed to understand from the word angel the nature of some beings, right? But this word angel speaks of the function of the individual, not its nature, since men are often called angels, actually, in the scriptures. It means somebody who is sent. You know, I remember when I was a very young believer, after that I read much about the end time prophecies and somehow believed the Bible, but there were these other prophecies that greatly disturbed me. The messianic prophecies. If one was true, then the other must be true as well. So far, I had come to believe through reading, reading books and the Bible. But as a Jew, I could not understand what Jesus had to do with all this. One day, one of my friends was sick in bed and a Baptist pastor actually came to visit. I went to sit next to him and asked, asked him to tell me actually who Jesus was. I remember he was very happy to get such a question. And knowing I'm Jewish, he explained that Jesus was the angel of the Lord. But the problem is that I had no idea what he was talking about. 
And I thought that he said that Jesus was an angel. I was relieved, but I was also disappointed because I thought that I was into something big, but if Jesus is just an angel, then it's no big deal. But somehow, this greatly disturbed me, and I know today it's from the Spirit of God who brought me that far and was not going to let me go. So I found out the phone number of this pastor, and I called him the same night. And I asked him if he really believed that Jesus was just an angel. This is where he clarified the term angel of the Lord and told me that actually it means that Jesus was God. I knew I was into something big. I didn't know I was something that big. I resolved it as I was then. You know, but I didn't really believe it then. But I knew it was true. I knew it was true. Biblical Christianity cannot be so powerful, so important if Yeshua is not divine. Better stay away from the scriptures. And leave Jesus alone and his word alone if you're going to fight this major, major doctrine. From this point on, it was a struggle. But the truth about the divinity of the Messiah set me free. And my Bible comprehension enhanced more and more. And so whenever we encounter the name, the angel of the Lord in our Bible, in every case it speaks of God. In our text of Genesis 16, he's directly called Jehovah in verse 13. To Abraham he appeared in Genesis 22 and he's called Lord. To Jacob he appeared in Genesis 31 and he's called the God of Bethel. I am the God of Bethel. That was the angel of the Lord speaking to Jacob. And there are many other examples, at least nine of them. All showing that who Hagar saw was actually a theophany. You know, the rabbis try hard to avoid all theophanies. Accepting a theophany in the scriptures is like saying that Jesus may, may be God. So they find ways around this truth. In his book, Some Aspect of Rabbinical Theology, Solomon Schechter wrote... He said, the rabbi identified this angel whose name is like that of his master as Metatron. Here they named the angel of the Lord Metatron. Who is Metatron? No one knows. But they had to come up with a new name because it is impossible to avoid this bodily manifestation of God. But the Targum are more honest and to the point. I love how the Targum of Jonathan translates Genesis 16.13. See what it says. You will recognize something in there. It says, She, Hagar, gave thanks before the Lord whose Mamra had spoken to her. And she spoke like this. You are the living and enduring one who sees but is not seen. For she said, Behold, here indeed the glory of the Shekinah of the Lord was revealed vision after vision. Who does the translator say spoke to Hagar? It was the Memra of the Lord. Do you know what the Memra is? The Memra is the Aramaic translation of our English word, word, right? Or the Greek logos. And you know, at the same time in history as the Jews were reading this, this translation, John comes and he says, in the beginning was the Memra and the Memra was with God and the Memra is God. This is how they understood it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was directly answering this belief about the Memra, because Yeshua is all over the Scriptures. He is very much in the Old Testament. These theophanies that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures find their fulfillment in Jesus and only in Yeshua. And in this part of the Bible, the angel of the Lord blesses Hagar, 
and especially her child, Ishmael. While it was really the parents' fault, Abraham's lack of leadership as a spiritual and physical head of his family, Sarah's lack of faith and irrational behavior, and Hagar's hatred towards her mistress, all of this was not the child's fault, and God honored this child and blesses him. However, this child would also behave rudely after the birth of Isaac 13 years later. And here the angel of Jehovah gives a prophecy for him, not a flattering one. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Further, behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live in the east of all his brothers. Here the angel of the Lord prophesied that the character, about the character of the child. He will be a wild donkey. These animals were hardly tameable. They were very wild, and so would Ishmael and his descendants be. We further see that he will not be at peace with his neighbors at all. Always at odds with them. Now I just want to tell you, this is not speaking of the Arab people. Even many of them claim to be descended of Ishmael so that they can claim the land. Ishmael was a Semite. He was not from Ham. The majority of Arab people are from Ham, just like Egypt, Canaan, Lebanon, Philistia. What happened to the Ishmaelites in the scriptures? According to Genesis 37, they are described as living in the desert, raising camels and engaging in caravan trade. Some identify them with bordered Bedouins. But in history, no mention of the Ishmaelite is found apart from a few mentioned in the scriptures itself. We'll learn more about Ishmael later on. But in Islam, Ishmael is viewed completely differently from the scriptures. Islam presents him as the promised son, not Isaac. It is Ishmael. When we ask them to tell us how they come to this conclusion, the answer is that they have the real story and we have the corrupted one. Hard to believe when you consider that Islam came 2,600 years after Abraham and for 2,600 years we are now told that God decided to hide the truth. This is not typical of the God of the scriptures. Our God is a God of truth. God never speaks in secret. All that you need to know is in the scriptures concerning him. You know that on the same line, you've perhaps heard that some Palestinian archaeologists and politicians claim that the Palestinian Arabs of today are direct descendants of the Canaanites, and so the land is theirs. Bad choice of people. Choose another people, not the Canaanites. It does not reflect well on the Palestinian society. Of these politicians was Yasser Arafat. Anything to claim their ownership of the land of, that God clearly gave to Israel. Now, one more thing about Hagar. There's something beautiful about this woman. Verse 9. Did you notice what... What happens there? The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And so she did. She did it for 13 years until Ishmael began to act and behave just like the prophecy said he will. But during this time, she complied and served Sarah. Here's another Ruth, another woman who came from another faith and obeyed the word of the Lord and submitted to Sarah. Hagar's means flight, a journey. 
right? Her life is filled with flights. She goes away from her land, Egypt, and becomes Sarah's maid. Here she flees from her mistress and tries to go back home. At the end, she goes again, away. And from her, we first learn that God hears, Ishmael, that God hears, you know, when you call him. This is how the angel of the Lord named the child. And we also learn that God sees, verse 14 concludes, this is the story, the conclusion of the story. It says, therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi, observe, it is between Kadesh and Beret. Bir Laharoi means the well of the living one who sees me. What a great name actually this is. And from her we learn that the Lord will meet us when we are in our needs. Verse 7. Two words actually are together in there. We should not miss. He says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness. Spring of water in the wilderness. Spring of water in the wilderness. Two opposite words. And this is where we meet God. While we may be in the wilderness, God will meet us there. And will lead us to the spring of water. And there we will see him. Now what about Isaac? When was he going to be born? Abraham still did not know. And there is one concept that comes out. Strong out of all this story. Is patience. Patience. The exact time of the birth of Isaac. Was going to be prophesied. Only in chapter 17. And this long waiting period is something the Bible seems to want to stress for us, to teach us about patience. If you're going to work with God, you need patience. Always. See, for instance, how chapter 16 ends and chapter 17 begins. It says, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. And Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. See how long he had to wait again? 13 years before God came back to finally tell him that it would be through Sarah that he would have a child. This is what he tells him. It is good to read these parts of Genesis with a calculator, by the way. You know, with it you can add all these years and you realize that again, if you're going to work with God, you need patience. You know, at the beginning of chapter 15, Abraham was 85 years old. And now he's 99 years old. He had to wait another year. And the, uh, the, the age of 100, he was going to have Isaac. The question is today, are we patient enough? This is what the text is telling us, right? Yeah, we're getting out of the theological aspect of what is written here because it is rich in theological truth. And we want to get to know how Abraham held all these things. He was patient. One major thing we learn is all this, in all this, is that we need to learn to be patient. James explains for us why we need to wait. James chapter 1 verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith, what does it produce? Patience, you see? Testing, patience. And verse 4 he says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is what it leads to. And God wants to, be, wants to have the best for us. And patience is the door for our growth, right? For our sanctification. And this is not all. There's the other question about the land, right? We saw the first one, now we see the second one. And I believe that this second question is the best of Abraham's trial. To this question, God again only partially answers it, but he strongly assures it. 
The second question is found in verse 8 of chapter 15. Speaking of the land, Abraham asks, he says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will possess it? Okay, I believe I'm going to, but can you tell me how things work? You know, we have seen that there were so many people in Canaan. You had the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, and so on and on. And besides this, you have those kings who came from afar. Amraphel, king of Shinar. We've seen it. Shedor Laomer, king of Elam, and so on and on. And so Abraham asked a legitimate question. How shall I know that I'm going to own it? Look at all these people. It doesn't look like I'm going to own anything. And again, God does not answer the question directly. He only confirms the promise. How and when, Abraham never knew. The answer will not take effect during Abraham's life because he never owned any of the promised land. Today, 4,000 years later, and the promise is not yet fulfilled. This is what I want to get to. This is what I want to get to when it comes to God's promises. God promised him something, but this something was for later. Later on, I believe, even in the eternal state. Here God never told Abraham that he will not get it in his lifetime. He left Abraham to figure this one out. Why? Because he wanted Abraham to have a mind for heaven. He wanted to see Abraham with the mind of the hereafter. We do not know why the Lord acts this way or another, but in all cases we need to trust Him and be patient. This is what comes out so powerfully in this whole story. We need to learn to be patient. Abraham was and he prevailed. You know, David Brooks, in an article he wrote in the New, New York Times back in 2006, it was titled, Marshmallows and Public Policy. He mentioned an experiment which concluded that kids who can wait for something do better in school and later on in life. This experiment began in the 1970s with four-year-olds. They would leave one child in a room with a bell and a marshmallow. If the child rang the bell, one person would come back and the child could eat the marshmallow. If the child waited for this person to come back on his own, the child could have two marshmallows. In videos of the experiment, you can see children screaming, that is, kicking, hiding their eyes, desperately trying to exercise self-control, and so they could wait, they could not wait to get two marshmallows. Their performance varied widely. Some broke down and rang the bell within a minute, others lasted 15 minutes. So the children who waited longer went on to get higher SATs, Scores, which is standardized college entrance examination. They got into better colleges and on average achieved more than others. The children who rang the bell quickest were more likely to become bullies. They received worse teacher and parental evaluation 10 years later and were more likely to have drug problems at age 32. The author of the experiment concluded that the children may be taught, and I quote, he says, that it pays to work toward the future instead of living for instant gratification. And this works wonderfully in the spiritual world. And this is a great truth about the trials of believers that we're going through in this life. The Bible strongly links our life here on earth with the one in heaven. Paul connects it, right? Remember that passage, 2 Corinthians 4.17? For I flight affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, he links heaven and earth. 
So the question that all is asking is, can we wait for our marshmallows? Right? Can we? We may not have it today, we may not have it tomorrow, we actually may not have it at all. Right? But it doesn't matter. Because God is going to give it to us later. Right? For many, because they do not get their marshmallow, they put the whole existence of God in question. So many are disappointed with God because they did not get what they prayed for. You know, the rabbis have their sages. They, comp- they compiled their writings and made books like the Talmud, the Midrash Rabbah and others. And they often consult them and they love their sages. But did you know we have our own sages? And superior ones because they believed in Yeshua the Messiah. And they were endowed by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. We do not make much of this great wealth of information we have in historical Christianity. One of them, J.C. Ryle, in his great book, Holiness. He wrote, he says, to reach the holy day of glory. Right? This is how he calls heaven. The holy day of glory, we must pass through the training school of grace. We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that is to come. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his powerful book, Christian Warfare, he wrote, we are in a preparatory school at the moment. This is not life, it's only the preparation. They understood, this man understood the faith of Abraham, and they reflected it in their writing. How real is heaven for us? How true are the words of Jesus when he says, I go and prepare a place for you, and when I come again, I'm going to receive you to myself. This is what all men and women in the scriptures according to Hebrews 11 actually focused on. This place in heaven. Now what was God's answer to Abraham? Well, he did not give him any details. His answer to him is so, so powerful. Let us go and see what God does. This passage is among the strongest one when it comes to the assurance of God's promises. Many today doubt their salvation. If you do doubt your salvation, I just want to tell you this passage is for you. Just let's read Genesis 15, 8-10 and see what God does after that Abraham asks him the question of the land. doesn't give him any details, but he assures him of an answer. So then he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and three-year-old female goat and three-year-old ram a turtle dove and a young pigeon and Bree brought all this to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other but he did not cut the birds in two why did he do this you know at the time when two people made a covenant they will take some animals cut them in two and both will walk in between and they will say something like as these animals are cut so would I be cut if I break the covenant but this is God who's speaking here the Hebrew here are karat berit that means to cut a covenant again it is God who chose this way to confirm his covenant with Abraham He couldn't have said it strongly than this because as God is eternal, so are his promises. And even more, when it was time to walk in between, you know who walked? Only God. Why? Because Abraham fell asleep. What does that mean? It means that the covenant is unconditional. There's nothing you can do to go to heaven. There's nothing you can do to uphold God's promises. He actually holds them himself. This is why he was the only one to walk. And why these animals? Why three-year-old when the sacrificial system, it is always one-year-old, one-year-old that is required? These questions actually have baffled many commentators. Let's first see how many animals were there. How many? 
five, the number of grace. Three are sacrificed, two are let go, and these animals needed to be three-year-old each. The number three is here repeated. This actually is the number of God. And the three denotes divine perfection, a divinely perfect sacrifice, so that we may have eternal life. And this may remind us of the final sacrifice of the Mamre, the angel of the Lord, who in fact was pierced for our transgressions. You know, to conclude, I would like to bring you to one maybe among the most important verse in the scriptures. We've seen it two weeks ago. Genesis 15:6. He says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted him for righteousness. A fundamental verse that was used again and again by men of God as they were striving to differentiate the Bible from man-made religion. As it was with Adam, so it was with all men. Since then, it's always justification by faith. But what actually brought the Spirit to declare Abraham righteous right at this moment in Genesis? What happened? Let's look at the context. See, just see what happened just before. God brought Abraham outside to see the spectacle of the universe, right? Verse 5. Then he brought him outside. He says, look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And right after, Abraham believed. But what triggered this belief right here? Was it the wonder of God that Abraham was struck with? I think so. I think so. We need to be amazed by God. Always and every day. Look for him in the marvel of nature. We need to be enamored by God. Always. Seek Him, especially in His Word. There, He will reveal Himself to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God, right? So go ahead, read it, study it, be charmed and captivated by its depth and wonders. The angels in heaven are constantly enamored. They repeat, remember, what did they repeat? Holy, 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 non-stop. Because they're amazed always at the wonders of God. And David too, if you remember, when he says, How I love your law, is my meditation all day long. That means he was reading the word all day long. All day long he was amazed by God. There's no circumstance in life that is not found in the word. Men and women of God went through so much. Their experiences are carefully selected for us. And the Spirit is the one who would lead you to them so that you can see your scriptures. One more thing. After the two first trials, Abraham graduated. How do we know that? His graduation actually is in chapter 17, verse 1. See what it says. It says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Do you know that no one walked before God before that? Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Enoch and Noah walked with God. But Abraham is the only one to be told that he walked before God. This tells us how close a relationship the two had. Abraham was such a great servant with a learning spirit that God made him the father of all who believe. He even allowed him to walk before him. To end, I don't know many times I said I'm going to conclude, but this is the last thing. Does God require blind faith? Should we doubt our, the presence of God after all this? Should we ever doubt our salvation? Now, let me tell you about this boy who was asked to be tied to a rope and let down a steep cliff to retrieve a valuable package worth much money. 
he was promised half the amount of the worth and it was quite considerable. So the boy longed for the money for he was very poor. But when he looked down into the 200 foot chasm, he said, no, I'm going to fall. After further persuasion, he said, well, okay, I will go only in one condition, only if my father holds the rope. And it was only when he courageously went down, he knew his father will never, never let him down. That is faith. He had confidence in his father. Let us bow our head in prayer. Yeah, we thank you, Heavenly Father, again for the life of Abraham, Lord. Lord, you sustained him even though you didn't give him all the answers he wanted, but you were always with him, always protecting him and Sarah and all the others with him. Heavenly Father, I pray that whatever we've learned today, we can enshrine in our heart and use it for our everyday life. Be with us, Heavenly Father, and I pray for each and every one here that your Holy Spirit will bless them. Put your healing hand upon those who need you, Heavenly Father. We all need you. As we pray in Yeshua's name, amen. May the Lord bless you. If you have any questions,